Flipsters, non-stop studs, and all my kittens. Welcome once again uh, to the Shrine of Cinema here, the Los Feliz Three, located in the festive um, uh, post office district of Los Feliz. Uh, directly across from one of the ugliest uh, facilities in all of the Postal Service's uh, vast tentacles. Uh, next to the cutest apartment building in L.A., uh, which is the irony of Los Feliz. Uh, I have a Perrier up here, so there's going to be um, a lot of fizzy-type talking here tonight. Tonight we're here to watch uh, uh, the 1938 classic by Alfred Hitchcock, uh, The Lady Vanishes, uh, which we're very, very excited about. Uh, last month we did our first picture here uh, as the Greg Proof Film Club resumed. Uh, Jennifer, my wife and partner, does all the... Um, a curating of the film club. I've been allowed to pick, I think, two films in the last seven years. And uh, I picked Lifeboat some time ago, about five or six years ago, which is the only other Hitchcock film we've ever shown. So I have no idea uh, how you do a film club and only show two Hitchcock films in seven years. But we managed to do it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, when we, last month, we showed uh, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday uh, by Jacques Tati. We don't have a date for next month, but I'm sure, we, I'm sure or I'll just mispronounce everything. I'm going to pronounce um, all of the sh sounds tonight with an S. Uh, just to throw you off, so there's no fair guessing when there's going to be a consonant or a gerund or any kind of uh, um, oblong sort of pronunciation. I'm sure that we'll have a, a, a fine cinematic program for you next month. Uh, probably Diabolique. We'll see what happens. Uh, right? Uh, no one shows that for Halloween, and yet it's super, super awesome. And speaking of Halloween, um, I'm actually in a movie. I can't believe I'm going to drink Perrier out of a bottle here. Why do I feel like I should be playing backgammon with a Persian guy and doing coke? Does anyone else getting a kind of an 80s feel here? Let's go down to J, what was it? Chez uh, in Santa Monica and really get it on. Thank you, that was for nobody evidently. Thank you for moving here recently, I appreciate that. Thank you for having no idea of Los Angeles's horrible, horrible, hideous, um, mm. The police were no different then, by the way. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, they lived out of state and they were white supremacists then. It's just now it's in high relief. Uh, when people who are uh, actually drive around in a car that says to protect and serve on the side refuse to wear a mask, you have to kind of wonder about the protect part. And the whole crowd went quiet again. Greg, this is serious. We were hoping to be dazzled and fly away on the wings of imagination for about a half an hour or so. And then let Hitchcock take us away in his usual dazzling way. And uh, you brought us right back down to the reality of Los Angeles. Yes, you will have to enter the streets again after the show. There's nothing I can do about that. Uh, I'm in a picture called uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, and we're doing a live version of it. I thought I might as well bring it up first. Let's get it off the table. Uh, we're showing it down at the, uh, uh, I believe it's, it's next to um, uh, the Los Angeles Coliseum, where uh, if any of you are cinematic fans from the early 70s, the movie Omega Man um, takes place. They're, they're going to do a crucifixion in the Los Angeles Coliseum. Anthony Zerbe, who's the leader of the zombie people, um, is leading this. And Charlton Heston busts in on a, on a motorcycle and rips up the steps of the Coliseum there. It's not the only movie they ever shot at the LA Coliseum. It's just my favorite movie that they ever shot at the um, LA Coliseum. Uh, the Omega Man is a fine motion picture. Uh, Charlton Heston, um, as Jennifer once said to me, um, was a complete conservative Nazi and com utter utterly wooden on screen. And my counter was, that's exactly why I love him. 
Um, there's nothing wrong with Charlton Heston in any movie. Um, here's my impression of Charlton Heston in The Omega Man. Get away from me, you damn zombies. <laughs> Because that's pretty much what he did in every movie. He lived in Los Angeles. It's the play, it's I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, which they've remade 72 times. Uh, the Vincent Price one is the, probably the, one of the finer ones. Then there's a Will Smith one from some time ago, uh, which has a lot of CGI'd wolves. And yeah, uh, if I wanted that, I could watch a Kate Beckinsale movie. But the point is, uh, uh, the Omega Man scared the dickens out of me when I was little. We were talking uh, earlier, my wife and I, about uh, pictures that scare you. And uh, Hitchcock uh, made a picture called The Birds, which he quite liked and said that it was one of his scariest movies. When you watch it now, um, I don't know that fright is the first thing that comes to your mind. You, I think you're astounded by how awesomely lesbianic Suzanne Plachette is in it. And I think you're, uh, some of Tippi Hedren's outfits, you're like, whoa, that is tasty. Um, and, uh, but, and her acting is frightening. There's a, a scene where the birds attack Tippi Hedren and she goes, no, no, like that. And you think, did anyone watch the dailies? Or this, Hitchcock just had such a hard on for Tippi Hedren that he was like, absolutely marvelous. Printed. Uh, first of all, if your name is Tippi, you've got everything going for you. Secondly, she raised lions, um, and the lions attacked people around her, including her daughter, Melanie Griffith, the fabulous actress. And then there's a movie about that called Roar, uh, which is scary enough in its own right. But I remember my mother left. She was a waitress, and um, this was during the Depression. And uh, she went to her job at the diner and uh, left me alone at the apartment. I'm from San Carlos, California, the whitest place on earth, home of the Plain Yogurt Festival. And... <laughs> San Carlos is so white, our Catholic school was called St. Charles. <laughs> San Carlos means St. Charles, you guys. But the town fathers were like, well, San Carlos sounds kind of Mexican, don't you think? <laughs> Maybe it'd be better if we called it St. Charles so that, you know, people would feel comfortable. So I lived in San Carlos, and my mother worked at a diner, and uh, she went to go wor work and left me alone. And I watched the birds all on my own. And the next day, I taped the windows shut, and I was mortified that birds, starlings and thrushes, uh, robins, uh, uh, what are the little shit birds that are everywhere, the little brown ones? I thought those were going to attack me. And then I walked over to my elementary school, and there were birds all on the telephone like there were in the movie. And I'm like, how did they fucking do that? <laughs> they didn't watch the movie last night, and yet they knew exactly how to act today to freak me out. And then one bird will go, <laughs> and bounce down the line, and you're like, oh no, this is when it starts. And the next thing you know, you have no eyeballs and you're laying there and you have to sing that horrible song that they sing in the movie. Perrier from a bottle. Who says this show isn't two-fisted fun? So I think you can be frightened by a dazzling variety of things, including the birds at the time. And then uh, I, I'm in The Nightmare Before Christmas, which isn't particularly frightening, but it's a lovely picture. And um, as my wife described it, um, he's, uh, uh, Jack Skellington decides to take over Christmas from Halloween Town, and then it becomes a site-specific job hassle. 
And uh, we're, but we're doing it live. We sing it, and Danny Elfman sings uh, at Jack Skellington. He wrote the score. And we're doing it downtown at, next to the LA Coliseum at a place called the Bank of California Park. Except the Bank of California Park is breaking all the rules and is spelling bank with a C. So it's the Bank of California Park. Very continental. Um, they play um, football there for you continental types. Um, Americans would, of course, call it soccer. Uh, they play the footy there, and uh, that's where we're doing it. So it's a very intimate scene. There's really nothing like a soccer stadium to bring the magic of cinema home. Uh, it's going to be lovely. We show it on giant screens, and there's a giant orchestra with 100 pieces, and it's really fabulous. So if you get a chance to come down, it's on October 29th and October 31st. Yes, Halloween night. And uh, who do we have there? Uh, Ken Page is coming to sing Oogie Boogie. And Yeah. And uh, I think Weird Al Yankovic is going to sing Shock, of all things. I didn't count on that one. Uh, apparently, John Stewart's going to be the narrator, too, so it's going to be crazy. I'm joking, of course. Someone went, wow. That is such a fucking Bernie bro response out here. This is the last neighborhood where you still see Bernie stickers on cars. How fucking sad do you have to be at this point? It's not going to materialize, you guys. He's a thousand. It's over. It's over. Even in Vermont or New Hampshire or whatever horrible state he's from. I can never tell the difference between the two of them. One of them shaped like that, and the other one shaped like that, and they kind of fit together. Vermont's the ostensibly hipper one, right? Because like Ben and Jerry or whatever. <laughs> and then New Hampshire, sort of the um, we have a Republican governor, and um, there's like a we pile money up around the perimeter in case people of color decide to move there. Thank you. It's a it's an absolute New Hampshire law, by the way. It's on their license plate. Uh, Yes, this picture is, uh, Alfred Hitchcock had made a bunch of silent photo, uh, pictures at, at this point, and then uh, had a couple of really unsuccessful movies. The Lady Vanishes is from 1938, and he convinced Michael Redgrave to do the movie. Believe it or not, Michael Redgrave didn't want to do the movie. Uh, Michael Redgrave was a stage star in London and was in John Gielgud's troupe, and a lot of you will know John Gielgud, of course, from the movie Arthur. And... <laughs> He uh, uh, got Gilgood evidently convinced Michael Redgrave to take this uh, role, and it made him a giant movie star. And then he had a, a long career on stage and in film. And of course, is the uh, uh, patriarch of an enormously successful cinematic family. Like Henry Fonda and Peter Fonda and Jane Fonda and Bridget Fonda, Michael Redgrave is father to Vanessa and Lynn Redgrave, who of course begat Natasha and, uh, who am I forgetting, Jenna, Gemma and Jolie and Carlo Nero, the screenwriters. So there's a ton of them running around uh, cinematically. Now, I've had occasion to meet both Lynn Redgrave and Vanessa Redgrave. Lynn is no longer with us, but was a superb actress, uh, both in comedy uh, and drama. I was doing the red carpet for the Grammys in 2007 with Joan Rivers, which was the fucking greatest gig in the world because Joan Rivers was more funny than any other human being you've ever met in your life. I mean, we were backstage and she was eating fruit and she goes, let me tell you something, fruit doesn't fill you up. <clears throat> right? Like she, she, <laughs> We would do the Oscars, and it was the year of Rinko Kikuchi, and Joan Rivers made no effort to pronounce anyone's name. And it made me happier than anything's ever made me on television. Uh, uh, what was the cat who directed Pan's Labyrinth? 
um, she would be like, okay, Jose Motivar. She just said anything. It was just great. And Rinko Kikuchi, she couldn't stop saying it. Um, uh, she was a, a gorgeous and glorious comedian who worked every day and um, was fantastic uh, in every way. And so we were doing the Grammys and they posted her down the big end. Uh, and this is 2007, so like I, Justin Timberlake, whatnot, were big stars. They put me down the other end. So I got the spoken word people. So, right, I got to interview Enya. Enya, did you know she could talk? Like, all we ever thought Anya could do is go like, sail away, sail away. Like, if you've ever been to a spa, you've heard Anya. She's very small and perfectly formed and a, a really lovely Irish woman with very dark hair and startling blue eyes, like the limpid pools of Ireland. And I said to her, we love you here in America. Why don't you ever tour? And she's like, oh, no. And I was like, awesome. You make the same album every five years, and you're just rich, and you live in Ireland. I have no idea why she came uh, to the Grammys that year. And um, George Clinton pulled up, right, with Cedric the Entertainer. George Clinton wasn't receiving a Grammy and did not have a ticket for the show and was not let in. <laughs> this is George Clinton of Funkadelic Parliament fame, one of the greatest funketeers of all time, a stanchion of American music. Uh, by the way, wrote all those songs, doesn't read music or play an instrument. Yeah, and fucking wrote, bow, wow, wow, yippee, yo, yippee, bow, wow, yippee, yo, right? So George Clinton pulls up with Cedric the Entertainer. Mind you, I'm posted way down the line. I've had to interview Bone Thugs and Harmony. That'll give you an idea of what year it was. Imogen Heap. I'm getting to, uh, Joan Baez, Joan Baez came to, I got to interview Joan Baez, which I was very excited about, because the Dixie Chicks were giving her like a freedom award that they'd made up. You know how like when show business makes up an award because they've never really done anything, but they make one up, so, you know, this was the Grammys. When would the Grammys ever stand for freedom? I don't think the Beatles won a Grammy, you know what I mean? Bob Dylan got one when he was like 70. So the, the, it's not like the Grammys really represent what's ever going on in music, but they came up with some Freedom Award. And I said to Joan Baez, um, what are you doing here tonight? And she goes, the Dixie Chicks are giving me an award for freedom. And I go, have you ever met them? And she went, no. <laughs> and I went, that is so fucking showbiz. I love that about tonight. Um, so George Clinton pulls up and he was wearing what could only be described as a sheep herder hat. And sort of this weird ensemble that included a very puffy sweater that clearly he had eaten a piroshki or a pierogi if you're from the Midwest. And it had slid down the front, leaving a trail. And he was absolutely awesome. In multicolored dreadlocks. Cedric was with him. I have no idea why. And uh, he pulled up. And at that point, I had just read an article about him in GQ magazine that talked about his uh, peccadillos and foibles and whatnot. And of course, I'm an enormous fan of George Clinton. And I said, George, it's so awesome to see you here. What are you doing? And he said, the penumbrous um, oscillating clouds will indicate whether or not the reticulating masses will know that the flow is ever to, right? And I said, well, that's fantastic. So you've come here tonight to see the Grammys. And he said, you know, uh, the pink and perfect cloud world that opens up and lets uh, butterscotch dreams in and whispers of butterflies is often found in penumbria. 
And I'm like, this is awesome. Because he's not going to do anything but speak in Clintonese. So I said, I just read an article about you. Was that an Esquire or GQ? And he goes, GQ. <laughs> so Lynn, Gray, Lynn Redgrave pitches up. Fantastically tall. All of the Redgraves are tall, right? Vanessa was tall. Michael was tall. Lynn was tall. She pitched up and she was taller than me in her heels, right? I was like, this is hot. Right? Now, mind you, I've been watching her in pictures since I was like six years old when I saw Georgie Girl or whatever. And um, she was in this fantastic uh, detective series in England uh, in the 80s as well, as well as all of her pictures. And of course, uh, Gods and Monsters, where she's hilarious as um, James Wales Maid, as played by John Hurt in the picture, um, the man who directed Frankenstein. And, and uh, son of Frankenstein, is it? What's the second? Bride of Frankenstein. Son of Frankenstein. It says Greg Proops Film Club, right? Shouldn't you know the difference between Son of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein? Uh, and uh, she, was, she was there to get a spoken word uh, uh, Grammy. So I was just chuffed beyond measure. Absolutely stunning. So I got to meet her. And then I was on a radio show called Loose Ends in London years ago. And Chumba, I'm telling you who was on the episode, Chumbawamba, <laughs> that'll give you an idea of what, when it was, uh, Gerald Scarf, who had just done uh, that animated picture for Disney, the um, Greek god one, which I can't remember the bloody name of. Hercules, Hercules right. The, I think James Woods is in it. Yeah. Although the less said about James Woods during the film club, probably the better. <laughs> You can go to Dantana's and see him uh, sitting in Ron Jeremy's old seat, which is now a vacant seat there. <laughs> hate, hate tweeting at Hillary if you ever want to catch James Woods. Hot action. You can go to Dantana's and see him there. Sitting next to a giant garlic crouton. <laughs> full of shame and pain. And... Uh, Yes, yeah, so that's who was on this show. And Sandy Toxvig was hosting it, who you'll know from the Great English Bake Off, if, you, if your mind runs toward those things. And, uh, of course, she was on Who's Line back in the day. And so Sandy Toxvig was sitting in for the actual host of the show, who was named Ned Sharon. So there's Vanessa Redgrave, and I'm at a table like this, and there she is across from me, right? So I'm vibrating the whole time. I can't even, talk, I can't even remember what I was supposed to talk about. I think a tour I was on or some comedy bullshit. So I'm like, <laughs> and Vanessa Redgrave's sitting there. And of course, she, right? her whole body was hanging off of her eye sockets. And just gorgeous, right? Handsome, I think, is the word that often journalists use when they want to talk about a woman of a certain age who's stately. And she was gigantically tall, and she had flaming red hair, and her cheekbones were sculpted as if they had been uh, in New Mexico uh, 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 in a mesa that the countless errant winds of time had buffeted endlessly with a delicate spray of sand. She was an archangel made life, right? There she sat. And I'm like, oh my God, she's a Mary Queen of Scots. Uh, 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 uh. She was in Camelot. She's um, uh, uh, Guinevere and whatnot. Like how many, how many movies, right? And how many television shows? So I'm losing my mind. And then they get let her speak. And she goes, we're having a rally this Sunday. 
and it's to free the Tibetan ground squirrels. They're not getting enough oat bran. And the, the repressive Chinese government is forcing these noble rodents into hiding, whatever it was. It was some <laughs> inconceivable nonsense that she has maintained throughout her entire career uh, uh, with her lefty causes. And that was supposed to be funnier, but of course, this is a Bernie bro crowd, and your feelings are... <laughs> Your feelings are hurt already. And so now that I've said that Vanessa Redgrave spoke nonsense, you're like, it isn't nonsense, Greg. They were Zionist hoodlums, and they made noise outside her hotel room the whole night. Uh, which I thought was fantastic, because she was completely in character. When she finally had the chance to speak, she was utterly humorless and absolutely devoted to her cause, which made me love her more. Then we get to the end of the program. And I've met her, of course, right? So I was like, Miss Redgrave, what a pleasure to meet you. And at the end of the show, Sandy reads the credits, and she goes, well, today on our show, Chumbawamba, Gerald Scarf, Greg Proops, and Vanessa Redgrave. Greg, that's the last time you'll be eating this billing. <laughs> so I was pretty chuffed about that one. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Dame May Whitty, who's the star of this picture, and... Uh, I have no idea what time it is. Uh, has, uh, uh, the, only because we have to start the movie at a certain point. Um, as much as I'm mesmerized by the sound of my own voice, and I think I've lulled you into a sense of it as well. Uh, Hitchcock is known for lots of things, and one of them I think that is major is um, women that are older than ingenue age often have superb roles in his movies. And uh, Dame May Whitty was a hero of World War I and did quite a lot of um, charity work during World War I in England, and that's why she was made a dame. Um, by the time uh, she started doing pictures, she was like quite old. Her career, when you look it up, takes place a good deal of it in the 19th century. And it's, so it's very exciting to have her as the star of this movie. And then, of course, she moved to America late in life. Uh, Michael Redgrave is in this as well, as I said. Um, Michael Redgrave wrote a biography late in his life, which he dictated to his son, Corin. And this is a quote from it. And this is so English, I can barely stand it. If you've ever been to England, you know that English people don't go on dates. They go out in giant groups, they get very drunk, they shag each other, and then they never speak about it. That's called a relationship in England. Thank you. For the rest of you, I invite you, when the plague is over, to travel more. I know, you're from Indiana and you moved here. I know. I got it. I got it. No, your screenplay's not in turnaround. Never bullshit me. Uh, and when he was dictating the biography, he said to his son, Corin, there's something I ought to tell you. And then, and this is one of my favorite parts of how it was written, brackets, long pause, and brackets. I am, to say the least of it, bisexual. Now, it can't have been a surprise to his family at any point. But it's an awesome thing to disclose while, reading, while dictating your biography to your son. I thought it was, but of course, you're a very respectful crowd and you're honoring each thing I say with a moment of silence. <laughs> so I'm appreciative of that. Hitchcock is in this movie, as he is in all of them. Uh, you'll notice him 
I, I won't tell you where he is, but let's just say it's later in the picture. It's not earlier in the picture. This picture was a giant hit for him, and he came to Hollywood off the back of it. So uh, David O. Selznick saw the movie, and moreover was bowled over by the box office, because it really killed in England. And it was named by the New York Times the best picture of 1938. And this one I couldn't believe when I was studying up for today. I literally couldn't believe it. In 1939, Hitchcock got the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Director, the only time he ever received an award for his directing. Right? Alfred Hitchcock. Now, Alfred Hitchcock, in my estimation, and my estimation is, of course, final on this, um, is the greatest of all movie directors. There, I've fucking said it. You can do what you like, and if you have Spielberg at the top of your list, we're not talking again. <laughs> but... Alfred Hitchcock made more good movies than any director I can think of. More movies that you're absolutely compelled by. More movies that you're completely caught up in. More movies that you can't forget um, scenes of and acting from. No, he's not the most pretentious filmmaker of all time. No, he didn't do dark subject matter. He's not Tarkovsky or Boonwell or Lena Wertmuller. He's none of that. But he's bloody entertaining. And... Montage is a, a big deal in his arsenal. Here's a couple of quotes of his, just to orient you. I never said all actors are cattle. What I said was all actors should be treated like cattle. <laughs> when he made North by Northwest, which is my favorite Sunday afternoon movie, it's sexy, thank you, and sophisticated. It has a fabulous score. It's a tremendous thriller. And... Uh, the man who wrote the screenplay, Ernest Lehman, set it in the hotel in the beginning so that Cary Grant was actually living in the hotel that he is, walks out of in the beginning of the movie. And he said, I didn't have to tell the audience anything. All they had to see was Cary Grant come out in the suit and everybody went, yeah. <laughs> right? So at the end of the picture, they fight it out on Mount Rushmore because Hitchcock always did something impish like that. There's a fight out in the uh, Statue of Liberty and Saboteur, right? There's always some unlikely um, action. So at the end of uh, North by Northwest, they're uh, fighting it out in Mount Rushmore. And what he wanted to do was have Cary Grant hide inside Lincoln's nose <laughs> and have a sneezing fit. That was what he wanted to shoot. Cary Grant up inside Lincoln's nose, hiding from the bad guys, and then, pfft, like, and he said the Park Service went, no. <laughs> and the Park Service's response was, how would you like it if Lincoln hid inside Cary Grant's nose? <laughs> Which I thought showed some eclat and elan from the Park Service. So he wasn't able to do it. Uh, let's see here. Uh, always make the audience suffer as much as possible, and, which I think is fantastic. This one, I think, is Hitchcock in a nutshell. I'm a type director, right? He's the king of suspense and all that. Even though he made Psycho and The Birds, which are horror movies, mostly it's suspense. I'm a type director. If I made Cinderella, the audience would immediately be looking for a body in the coach. <laughs> which I think is fantastic. Uh, and then this one, I think, says everything about him. You remember that he was uh, 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 large, 
Alfred Hitchcock. He was also quite famous. I can't think of another movie director that's as famous for being a movie director as Alfred Hitchcock. First of all, he stuck himself in every movie. And in Lifeboat, the one we showed before, it takes place solely one set on a boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on a lifeboat and people keep coming in and out of the boat. So how does Alfred Hitchcock get in the movie? At one point, someone picks up a newspaper and his picture's in it. It's just fantastic. Um, this is what Alfred Hitchcock said. He had a TV show from the 50s to the 60s and uh, Peter Bogdanovich interviewed him many times. And in Peter Bogdanovich's book, he says he's interviewing him in the 60s at the Plaza Hotel in New York. And Alfred Hitchcock's wife, Alma, was his complete and utter partner. He couldn't have done anything without Alma and he always said so. Uh, Alma and him, really, really work together to make all these pictures, right? And you see them in the 20s when he's got dark hair and she's sitting behind him with the script, right? And they're all very intense. Uh, at this point, he's famous and he's drinking frozen daiquiris. And Peter Bogdanovich says that he's kind of drunk, right? Not he, he, Peter Bogdanovich is drunk. He goes, I don't drink that much. And Hitchcock keeps going, you're not drinking, you'll drink. And so he's scuzzling. He goes, now they all get in the elevator after the interview. And a bunch of people get in the elevator and they're all like, oh my God, it's Hitchcock, right? And Hitchcock goes, so the man is bleeding from everywhere and there's pools of blood all around. And everyone is like this. And Peter Bogdanovich is like, what? And he goes, Alma's gazing off. She's not even paying attention. He says, and there's blood all around. And I said to the man, whatever happened, why is there so much blood? And the doors open and he goes, and so the man said to me, and everyone gets off the elevator. And Peter Bedanovich goes, what did the man say to you? And Alfred Hitchcock goes, oh, that's my elevator story. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, from 1938, the lady vanishes.